This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Benjamin Lipscomb is professor of philosophy at Houghton University. He earned his PhD from the University of Notre Dame. He is an accomplished scholar and author who specializes in contemporary ethical theory and the history of philosophy with a particular focus on issues of character formation. His recent book, The Women Are Up to Something, tells the story of four women who reshaped ethics and philosophy in the 20th century. And that book is the topic of our conversation today. Professor Lipscomb, welcome to Thinking in Public. Oh, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, I have to say, I think your book title is one of the very best uh, of any recent release, certainly in the field of intellectual history uh, and, uh, and philosophy. You're, you entitled the book, The Women Are Up to Something. Uh, so first of all, who are they and what in the world are they up to? <laughs> I should give credit to my acquaintance at the University of Chicago, Candace Vogler, who said, this is what your title should be. But I love it, too. Um, the women are Elizabeth Anscombe, Philippa Foote, Mary Midgley, and Iris Murdoch, who all meet up at Oxford right at the beginning of the Second World War. They're born right after the First World War, and this sets them up to be about 18, about when war is breaking out again. And they cross paths there under really unusual circumstances when the men have volunteered or been conscripted away. And suddenly the character of the university changes overnight and they get a kind of mentoring and encouragement possibilities open up for them that I think it's reasonable to say wouldn't have if it had been five years earlier even. Yeah, it is a fascinating moment in history. I think it's it's great to kind of lay the historical foundations for an intellectual development here. So you're talking about uh, colleges, uh, and in particular, residential colleges in the Oxbridge system, and in particular at Oxford. And uh, it had not been that long since women were denied even admission to those colleges. Right. They'd been there had been women's colleges since the late 19th century. I think 1870. I'm going to get the date wrong. 1879 ish uh, when Somerville and Lady Margaret Hall opened the first of these women's societies. But no degrees uh, right. can be granted until 1919. It's right after the First World War when I think in acknowledgement of all the things women had been doing in British society, it felt too absurd to go on denying uh, them the right to degrees. Right. Though I have to then say Cambridge didn't begin granting women degrees until the late 1940s. Uh, but they are Har they Harvard themselves. University, very close to that, by the way. Yeah. And they understand themselves to be on probation. And uh, there's a moment in the book where I quote one of the uh, officers of Somerville College, where three of the four of these women went, saying, you need to understand the women are on probation at this university, that you might think you just act for yourself, but in fact, everyone's looking at you. Everyone's making judgment about women at Oxford. This isn't a settled yeah. thing that we wish it were. <laughs> yeah, you know, in terms of the historical uh, chronology here, uh, World War One was not just uh, an occasion for women to be unusually integrated into the economy, especially uh, there in Britain, uh, and into uh, and into vocational life. Uh, it also represented a death toll among young men that was one of the first in human history and one of the last to have been so disproportionately 
uh, lethal to the elite. And so, you know, you, you think about uh, Harrow, Eton, uh, Oxford, Cambridge, and the other most elite schools, the death toll of the officer class in, in World War I was so horrifying that it wasn't just that men went off to war, it's that so many of them never came home. Yeah, it's true. It's talked about sometimes as a lost generation. The point can be overstated in, I did a little calculation on the back of an envelope when I was asking, okay, all of these women had officers for fathers. How likely is it that all of their fathers would have come home? And the odds were about even. Um, but still, 17% of your officer class is a devastating toll. And it was very unevenly distributed. There, the story has been told many times of how whole communities would send off their men together. And thinking of morale, uh, the British Army allowed these villages to serve together. And so if there was a devastating attack, a whole village could lose its entire yeah. uh, young men. Yeah, just horrifying. And, and then this uh, strange interregnum between the wars. And uh, then, um, as we are reminded uh, in, in Abraham Lincoln's language, uh, war came. Uh, in this case, uh, the Second World War. Yeah. And, uh, and as it came, uh, once again, Oxford and Cambridge uh, were basically emptied out of uh, not only, by the way, many students, but many professors as well, drawn Correct. into the military intelligence and, uh, and other defense apparatus. Classics, it turned out, uh, was wouldn't necessarily suppose this, but a field that lended itself well to reapplication in military intelligence that one, there's a, a great biography that I'm anticipating coming out before too long of uh, J.L. Austin, a uh, very famous classics and philosophy professor at Oxford who spends his whole war up in Bletchley Park doing code breaking. You know, uh, that afforded the colleges an opportunity, but but also it was a tremendous challenge because there really was a sense in which it was hard to imagine how some of those residential colleges could continue uh, during the war. And uh, so how did that happen? I mean, it, 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 it all the in fact, uh, one of the big issues uh, I was at Oxford as uh, uh, studying in 1986, and, you know, there were still people there then who were quite aware of the deprivations during the war when it, it often seemed you know, unlikely that some of this could continue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How did they continue at all? Well, I mean, these are places, the men's colleges particularly, that have some accumulated means and can weather a storm. Uh, but another thing to emphasize here is the government was allowing some officers and others to go through, particularly on short courses. And so the the traditional population of men is gone, but there's also these sort of RAF cadres coming through for little targeted short courses and then right off again. And casualties. Yeah. Uh, wound, men who had been wounded would right. find their way eventually back uh, to the universities. Yes. The wounded, the conscientious objectors, the ordinance, anybody who is going through a course judged of special strategic importance, people on yeah. short courses bound for the officer corps, th this odd uh, collection of men. But suddenly, particularly in longer courses like the classics philosophy curriculum, um, yeah. which takes four years, that it's kind of just the women who are left. Right. And they were up to something. Yes. Uh, so I kind of take us into that. So, so mm -hmm. why was philosophy in this particular time for this generation of young women 
such an attractive intellectual discipline. Hmm. It didn't have to be. That's yeah. the first thing to say that the dominant school of philosophy at this time, what philosophy meant popularly and in many circles within the academy was the positivism of A.J. Ayer. Right. A view that all there is is the deliverances of the hard sciences, and if philosophy is for anything, it's just for cleaning up the language with which we express right. logical and scientific establishing rules truths. Yeah, and yeah, the title of uh, Ayer's book is really telling here: language, truth, and logic. We're going to analyze language so as to articulate very plain, humdrum scientific truths and logical principles, and that's it. As uh, Frank Ramsey said. Ethics was judged to be a subject without an object. And so the political questions that are so hot and pressing for people who are themselves having to decide what to do about Hitler, who had to decide a few years before that what to do about Franco in Spain, and whose peers are making these same decisions, politics is so consuming a concern, and philosophy has turned clean away from it. I think that it's it's a testament to the power and example that a mentor can have uh, that these four go into philosophy. I will make an immediate exception for Elizabeth Anscombe, who converts to Catholicism at age 15 over the objections to the horror of her family, and she was going to be a philosopher no matter what. But the other three, it's their theologian philosopher tutor, uh, Donald McKinnon, who swims against the current, who thinks unfashionable thoughts, who remains interested in understanding evil in the world, and in thinking metaphysically in a way that you were not supposed to do if you were a fashionable philosopher at that time, and they come under McKinnon's tutelage, and this is redirecting for them. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, this generalization is sometimes Oxford and Cambridge, but the two have very different personalities. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Oxford, in particular, with analytic philosophy uh, or analytical philosophy, depending on which side of the pond you're maybe on. Yeah. But um, but also just uh, it was not just philosophy. It was also law. I think of H.L.A. Hart and others who, who held to such a positivist understanding of law, you know, and, and an absolute division between the law and morality, you know, just stating that the law makes absolutely no moral claims and is based upon no morality. It's just a, it's, it's like a, a, a game of rules. This is. These are the rules, but no one's claiming they comport to a, a correspond to a moral reality. Uh, analytical philosophy did a very similar in terms of, and, and you mentioned air. I mean, uh, again, there is, there is no objective truth to be known unless it's a, a mathematical formula. Right. Ethics is a matter of expressing what side we're on. Uh, on practical matters, cheering or booing with respect to what we see happening in the world, what we fear or hope will happen in the world. It's not something that can be assessed as more or less accurate, more or less correct. There's no answerability to the world right. or to truth there. So let's put that in context before we turn to the women who are up to something. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's hard to imagine a period in, in, in modern history, let's just say, you know, the last 300 years. It's just hard to imagine a moment in which it was less sustainable to argue that ethics has no content than uh, in the period between the two world wars. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about this. A, a, an early reviewer of the book, uh, Cheryl Mijak, said in her review, well, 
obviously RM Hare, uh, Richard Hare, who becomes the kind of professional antagonist to these four women as they are trying to articulate to themselves and to others what moral truth could be like, um, how we could make sense of that. Hare has this enormous following and he himself has been through horrors as a prisoner of war in Burma. So it's got to be that there's some existential pull to this ethics is unreal kind of position. And I think there is, I talk about this in the book, there is a kind of attraction to the idea of facing down the bleakness of it all and being brave enough, un, um, what's the word I want, unconsoled enough to see things the hard and horrible way they are and face them. And so I think maybe especially for a prisoner of war who'd been through it, uh, to say, yes, none of this is real. All we have is the stake we turn in the ground. There is nothing but ourselves and the commitments we band together around. There's something at some level really unsatisfying about that. But I've been trying in charity to say, what's the attraction there? I think maybe that's something like it. Yeah, you know, it's just interesting to look in contrast at the world of theology at the time. Uh, because, you know, the, the big movement uh, gaining ground between the, the two wars, and especially on the continent, is neo-orthodoxy. And uh, neo-orthodoxy is rejecting the, uh, the optimism, uh, the, the moral uh, optimism of, of liberalism because of the, of the killing fields uh, of World War I. Yeah. Uh, it's really interesting that at the same time, in contrast, uh, philosophy is kind of giving up on value judgments. Yeah. And it starts uh, early in the interwar period. Uh, I'm sure you've read uh, Lewis's The Abolition of Man, where he talks about this sort of upper forms uh, language arts textbook that is making these sorts of claims that any judgment of value is just a kind of expression of preference. Men without chess. Mm hmm. Yeah, uh, without the moral capacity, but he, he he was using an odd physiology to make that point. Yeah, they, yeah. they have uh -huh. they have hearts and, uh, and, mm -hmm. and they feel and they have minds. They think, but nothing mm -hmm. to uh, to relate the two. Yeah. Um, all right. So these women end up at uh, and and among many. So you you have four very influential women, uh, each yeah. of whom, but not equally, uh, became uh, famous. Uh, in the field of, of philosophy, I think of Iris Murdoch. I think most people would, uh, you know, think of her as a novelist, right? Uh, not as a philosopher. But then again, if you read her novels, as I have, um, there's an incredible background of philosophical sophistication in them. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting to read her interviews where she talks about her novels and denies vehemently that they're expressions of her philosophy. And I guess. I can take her point. They're not didactic novels. Right, uh, right. They're not like, I mean, thank goodness, they're not like the novels of Ayn Rand, uh, where you have these characters making great speeches, which are right. obviously self-inserts for the author. Right. But uh, they are full of her reflection on philosophical themes, and you can trace all sorts of connections to the things she's puzzling through. But she is a very influential essayist. There's a book that came out Oh, I want to say about 10 years ago by Justin Brooks from Brown University, an edited collection, Iris Murdoch, philosopher, in which people, including some people like Charles Taylor, enormously famous, talk about what a difference 
Iris Murdoch's few little collections of essays made in shaping and redirecting their thought. What she's wonderful at is imaginative recasting, getting people to approach a whole right. set of questions in a new way. Yeah, even her novels, I simply have to say. Uh, yeah, 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 my first thought when I read the very first of her novels is, uh, it's hard to imagine a group of this many different characters who think this deeply about things. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, they all all kind of like pe people who went to university together, going right. on having the conversations right. they were having at Oxford. Amazingly enough, yeah, yeah. And, and and by the way, you know, again, uh, one of the most influential uh, literary figures of the 20th century. So, in other words, yes. what she did, she did extremely well. Yes. Okay, so these women end up. Uh, and and I, I want you to tell the story of their relationships and, uh, and 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 so how did they end up at Oxford and how do they end up being discussed together? Okay, they end up at Oxford by different paths. Uh, I don't know how much you want me to fragment this, but Midgley comes from a family where education was an expected thing for the daughters. Uh, and so she's just looking at her options from uh, a quite excellent girls' school downhouse uh, from early on. It's never a question whether she's going to going to go to university. Similarly, for Elizabeth Anscombe, whose parents were both school teachers and definitely wanted education for their children, but uh, Iris Murdoch—it's a bit of a reach. Her parents had not been. Uh, to university, and they were upwardly mobile in thinking about getting their daughter into a good preparatory school and then encouraging her to consider this. And Philip Hoopfoot is my favorite story here. She's the granddaughter of a U.S. president, Grover Cleveland. Um, her mother was the last baby born in the White House, I think, uh, in the White House, uh, literally delivered there. And uh, she, her mother is married to the younger son of a British aristocrat. And so she's raised by governesses up in North Yorkshire. And higher schooling is very much not what people in her set wanted for their daughters. Right. Explain uh, that. But I, I don't, I interrupted you there and, no. because that is so counterintuitive. It's just like the use of the word middle class when we speak about Britain is, is so generally misunderstood by Americans. But when you're looking at the lower aristocracy, not to mention the higher, but the lower aristocracy, the thought of sending their daughters to university was just absolutely foreign. Yeah, it's not respectable that they were to circulate in the county set of dignified, distinguished people, take their place as society hostesses and people of distinction who are a bit above it all. Uh, and the idea of getting trained to go and do something economically productive, uh, that's it's beneath them. And so uh, there's a wonderful story that I had from Peter Conradi, uh, Iris Murdoch's biographer, who also knew Philippa Foote quite well, uh, of the time when Foote had been told by a governess, you know, you really could go to university. And Foote was already quietly within herself rebelling against the life that she was leading at home. And she was very interested in this set her heart on it. To their credit, her parents did not resist her. But uh, she did have this story of a friend of her mother saying to her, um, don't worry, dear, because her mother was fretting about her daughter doing something so common. Don't worry, dear. 
she doesn't look clever. So yeah. at least she looked still <laughs> yeah. distinguished and elegant yeah. and like she hadn't mucked around yeah. in education. Yeah. Well, I mean, it does tell you something about the, the some of the stereotypes that were also yeah. established by class very rigidly. You yeah. know, for instance, in the United States, uh, there's some good works on higher education that point out that uh, one of the reasons why the upper middle class in the United States uh, why those parents often did not want their daughters going to college or university is that the academic setting would include young men they did not consider suitable. That they could they could basically arrange a much tighter class uh, uh, association. Uh, but once she got to the university, it was doors are wide open. Oh, that's fascinating. It's filling with all kinds of thoughts about the present day situation to which the number of women going to university right. in the States is much greater than men and the trouble this makes for marriage. But Absolutely. that would be a distraction. <laughs> yeah, no, but but it, it does tell us that. I mean, we take for granted right now. And, and, and by the way, there are some very deep educational and sociological concerns about the pattern right now. And yeah. it's not that there are too many young women in higher education, there are too few young men. Right. Um, but nonetheless, I think it's important for us to recognize in the span of human history, even in what we would call higher education, uh, the, the, the widespread uh, admission of many women into graduate programs is actually a, a, a fairly recent development. Yeah. And very unevenly distributed among different disciplines. Right. That there's still a lot of talk about this, and rightly so in philosophy. I mean, I teach upper level philosophy courses. I've been doing it for 20 years. And the women I teach are terrific, and actually a number of them have gone on to graduate work, and yet you look at the profession as a whole, and uh, it's pretty tilted. Is this about a kind of socially constructed or more deeply rooted disparity of interests? doesn't seem to me that as I teach them, but yes, yeah, some fields, uh, you've got a lot more equal balance or tipping the other way. So uh, these, uh, the four women were indicative of a larger group of women yeah. who uh, both uh, uh, seized and saw the opportunity to yes. pursue what was not only an opportunity for them to study, but also a sense of responsibility that uh, th th these were fields that needed work and uh, they had something to contribute. And so they enter into the uh, the academic study of philosophy. And at a, you mentioned uh, positivism. I mean, at a particularly sterile time in the philosophical academy in the English-speaking world. Yeah. They love the ideas that, and I'm, again, needing to say, I'm talking about the three who study with Donald McKinnon. Right. Uh, Elizabeth Anscombe, <laughs> when you've got a kid who starts reading 19th century natural theology textbooks in her teenage years and picking apart arguments for God's existence to see how they can be made better... Uh, that kid's going right. into philosophy no matter what anybody does or says. Yes. Whether there's but, a degree involved, you have no. a philosopher on your hands. But the <laughs> other three, it's the intensity of McKinnon's determination to understand the evil overtaking the world and to create language in which to talk about this comprehendingly and to think how to address it. I think they are captivated a little bit like Plato is captivated by Socrates, by the example of this person thinking out loud in front of them. And they think that, that is important. Those questions are important. I don't think at the first, they have some mission to transform a discipline. Uh, that happens 
this is a little bit of a distraction, but I, I think it's relevant. I was teaching today about St. Benedict in the early medieval period. He doesn't set out to preserve literacy in the West. He doesn't set out to create these islands of order in a sea of chaos. He does that by accident. And I think something similar is true here, that they are gripped by these questions. They are determined to go on thinking about these things if they can be allowed to and can make enough money to support themselves doing it. But they have certain preoccupations which then answer to the needs of the philosophical community and of a wider community in that moment. And above all, they become determined, like their mentor, to find something more satisfying, more instructive to say about evil in the face of the Holocaust, in the face of the bombs, uh, in the face of political tumult of all sorts. They want a better vocabulary, a better conceptual vocabulary in which to talk about this. Philippa Foote exemplifies this. She goes and sees the first films coming out of uh, Buchenwald and is just shocked to her core by this. And goes and talks to McKinnon, says to him, nothing can ever be the same now, can it? And he said to her, no, nothing can ever be the same. But from that moment, she doesn't see how right away. None of them do. But they go in with this intuition, air has to be wrong. We've got there to figure out how. There has to be how. moral. There has to be content to morality. Mm -hmm. there, there, ha there has to be some way of expressing truth uh, in moral terms. Yes, there has to be something and it starts better with evil. to say than that Hitler mm -hmm. had different sentiments than we do. Right, right. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, uh, and I'm a theologian, by the way, I appreciate the fact McKinnon's both a philosopher and a theologian. Yeah. Um, and as a theologian, I have to say, it is really interesting that uh, our attention is so often directed in a way that can be described as moral realism, not by the good, but by the evil. In other words, it, it's evil that requires an explanation, and evil on a scale of uh, the Holocaust, Nazi Germany, and, and, and frankly, other developments at the same time. Um, yeah. e evil focuses the mind in a way that uh, otherwise the mind might never focus. Hmm. Yeah, I want to think about that. Something to that. Well, theodicy has been the driving issue of much theological, even changes in theological method over the course of the 20th century. Even, of course, into the, you can go back to Leibniz and, uh, you know, go back to the 19th century. But in the 20th century, human evil on a scale that human beings had never imagined before, uh, it, it's the one reality every theology, every philosophical tool, it, it has to address itself to that evil. Yeah. What's the Latin phrase, under hook malum? Whence this yeah. evil? Uh, why is yeah. it like this? Yeah. Okay, so the, these, uh, the four women that you cover, and, and three of them study with McKinnon, uh, Philippa Foote uh, 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 separately. Uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of tempted here to, to say, uh, let's talk about the three for a moment and, uh, and the influence of, uh, but I, 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 don't, I don't, I want you to tell the narrative the way you, you, you want to lay it out. In okay. other words, how did they find each other and, and what drew the four of them together? Okay. They find each other because Oxford is a small place and there's fewer people there, especially in right. upper level philosophy lecture halls. Right. Um, uh, Murdoch and Midgley start they become, together. They become more than close friends. I mean, they're, 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 yeah. they're, they're, they, 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 there's a camaraderie here that's very, yes. very deep. And it's kind of pairwise. Uh, that Murdoch and Midgley start at Somerville College together in the same year, and they're both doing classics. 
uh, which is the principal way that you study philosophy at Oxford at this time. You do ancient history and ancient philosophy and then modern philosophy in this kind of strange but very instructive and fruitful uh, hybrid program. And so they are going through all the same lectures together, going to the same tutorials, going going through the curriculum side by side and form a tight friendship that way. Murdoch ends up being uh, the maid of honor in Midgley's wedding uh, a decade later. Foote and Murdoch become acquainted with one another really only at the end of their undergraduate years, but quickly form a tight bond and end up rooming together during the war when they're both doing war work in London and form this tight, tight, lifelong friendship. Foot is one of the people who's nursing Murdoch, or I should say giving compassionate leave uh, to her husband when Murdoch is descending into Alzheimer's at the end of her life. Um, and Midgley and Foote know one another as people who are just at Somerville together. They're always sort of casual university friends. Uh, I wouldn't say the two of them are ever particularly tight. And then Anscombe becomes especially close with Foote when they're colleagues together at Somerville. Anscombe has gone to St. Hughes College, but ends up being hired on in a research position and Foote joins the faculty at Somerville, and they go through most of two decades side by side as the philosophy team at this small but extremely distinguished women's college. And every afternoon, talk philosophy until it's time to go home for supper. Yeah, what a life. Uh, I mean, it, 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 it is a different mode of existence. And uh, yes. parts of it survive uh in yes. academic life today, but only parts. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so, so let's let's talk the content of their intellectual contribution. So, so yes. what what sets them apart? Or to ask it again, what, what what exactly were they up to? Okay, yeah, I'm resistant. I'm hesitant to yeah. use the word school. And some reviewers have said, were they really a school? I think I quote one person saying that in yeah. the preface, and it's become a theme in reviews. I. I'm uncommitted on how school-like to make them. They yeah. certainly didn't have a sense of themselves like the Frankfurt School, uh, that they right. have this mission right. that they can write a manifesto about. They also weren't trying to change the world tomorrow. No, um, but they build on one another's work. All of them, in each of them in her own way, is set against... Ayer's vision in which there's no moral truth. And they prod and prompt one another toward, I'm going to use the term ethical naturalism, and that could be misleading because it could suggest a kind of fully secular view. For some of them it was, and for some of them it wasn't. But what I mean is that ethics is to be understood as for human beings grounded in facts about our created nature. I'm putting it Christianly here, our created nature. But if you didn't believe in creation, you just talk about our nature. Uh, and they are reaching back for and trying to repristinate uh, the views of Aristotle and Aquinas, these great pre-modern moral thinkers who think in terms of virtues and vices, who think in terms of the qualities, the traits, that help us to live a rich, flourishing life as the kind of creatures we are, doing the kinds of things that we characteristically do as members of our species. The vices are the traits that get in the way. The virtues are the ones that facilitate human life. 
And there can be more to say to that than that, particularly for a Christian who thinks that faith, hope, and love are the virtues beyond the virtues. But nonetheless, base level is to understand that there's such a thing as succeeding or failing at what human beings are designed to do. And we can, by recovering that vocabulary, we can help people to see how it could be not absurd to relate right. values to facts. Not absurd. Yeah. I mean, the fact that that is uh, the intellectual leap that must be made just tells us a great deal about the sterility of analytical philosophy. And, and, and frankly, it was not equal, but it was, it was present on both sides of the Atlantic. So, yeah. you know, um, it, it, let me ask you, is there any analogy to these four women? in terms of uh, American intellectual life? I'm not aware of a cluster in the same way of people who go to work on responding to positivism and build off of one another. Really, I think of the rejection of positivist ethics in the United States as coming with John Rawls uh, around 1970, uh, when <laughs> just he makes a clean break and says, look, we've we've had a civil rights movement. We've had an anti-war movement. We've been trying to figure out who to allocate dialysis machines to. Let's just talk about justice again as if none of this ever happened um, instead of really trying to build a new foundation for talking about ethics. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking along some of the same lines uh, in, in the United States, by the way, uh, as you know, the university culture was not altered to the same degree as was right. true in the British Isles. Right. Uh, for one thing, uh, Roosevelt and uh, the American military elite saw the continuation of the universities as necessary for the war effort. Mm. And uh, so uh, it, it was I mean, clearly uh, millions of young men were conscripted and uh, and as well as volunteered, but conscripted and, and, and sent to war. But a significant number were considered to be necessary for scientific, especially scientific and technological research. And so portions of the American universities actually thrived, whereas uh, in Great Britain, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the intellectual class uh, in the military culture there is separated from the universities into yeah. you know, kind of what you call military think tanks like Bedford yeah. Park. Yeah, there's um, a special burden of justification over there, akin to the yep. burden of justification that was put on travel. Is your right. journey really necessary? These signs right. hang up everywhere. Right. And you get educated if there was some special reason to keep educating you or if it wasn't getting right. in the way. Right. And and again, World War One was experienced so differently yeah. on the two sides of the Atlantic. And the Americans got there so late, experienced right. nothing of the mega death as a uh, Hobbsbound called it. Or the sense of existential yeah. threat. You're on this yeah. little island and the Germans are right, right there. Right. You know, when people hear the name Elizabeth Anscombe, when evangelical Christians hear that name, you, you know exactly where they go. The, the one thing they know about Elizabeth Anscombe is that not only did she enter into a famous debate with C.S. Lewis, but even C.S. Lewis believed that she defeated him. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I think, you know, again, evangelicals, I know that name. Now, I, I think they may also know that name for some other reasons having to do with such things as euthanasia more recently. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, but let's come back to C.S. Lewis for a moment. Sure. So how exactly did that happen, and, and why mm -hmm. was it so devastating uh, to C.S. Lewis himself, by his own perception? Okay. Um, how it happens is Lewis is the faculty advisor to this group that had been around since these women's undergraduate days, uh, the Socratic Club 
which is a wonderful organization. Lewis yeah. and some students and a chaplain pull this together because they feel like, feel rightly, like serious theological exploration has not right. found as much of a place, as much of a forum as it should have at a university like Oxford. And so they start sponsoring conversations that are often conversations between believers and unbelievers. Right. And it's this incredibly rich, fertile uh, context. And all four of uh, the women I write about were interested in, sometimes engaged with the Socratic. Elizabeth Anscombe is dragged into, she'd been a, an attendee and she really liked how they did business. She loved how they would carry a conversation over from one session to the other. She's so serious about the life of the mind, but she was very shy about public speaking in the early phases of her career, which is surprising given how pugnacious she could be, but she didn't seek out these opportunities, but she was coaxed into giving a response to a chapter from Lewis's book on miracles in which he said that uh, naturalism in a different sense than I've been using it is self-contradictory, is self-defeating. Um, and what happens without getting deeply into the weeds here is that Anscombe is one of the best analytic philosophers of the century and finds some genuine technical problems with what Lewis had thought was this airtight little argument uh, that you couldn't possibly assert an evolutionary origin to human thought processes. Um, Al Planning has made an argument like this uh, in recent years, acknowledging and taking account of Anscombe's criticisms. Um, but Lewis isn't ready for them. He was a philosopher as an undergraduate, and he's a first-rate mind, but his professional specialty is literary theory and Anscombe is operating on a next level in terms of this kind of digging in to implications. And he sees it. It's a little bit like Salieri being able to appreciate Mozart. I don't like that comparison because Lewis is greater than that. But that experience of being able to perceive that something is so, but not being able to match it yourself. And he was really deeply embarrassed by this but had the honesty and the humility that he reached out to Anscombe, or rather he reached out to one of his fellow officers at the Socratic and said, I think we need her to be our next president. If she's defeated me as an apologist, then she should take over. And I think that's a really impressive moment. And Anscombe noticed this about him, noticed how he revised the chapter when the second edition of Miracles came out and said, that's a serious person. And when he wrote The Problem of Pain, wrote in a very different light. Yes. Um, uh, about that for a moment. Uh, as a theologian, I often find C.S. Lewis very wanting. Uh, in other words, uh, there's a problem in uh, intellectual um, categories when you just assume that someone who's absolutely brilliant in, uh, in for instance, English literature, or, or even medieval English literature, which there there is no greater mind, frankly, unless it was his colleague and friend, J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, you know, th th in other words, it it's just not translatable necessarily into being a first-rate debater in another field. And, and so, again, I have great appreciation for C.S. Lewis. I, I find him theologically wanting. Um, but at the same time, he is uh, the most effective communicator 
uh, on behalf of uh, of classical theism uh, in the 20th century. Uh, you know, and, and you mentioned Plantinga. I, I think Plantinga far more sophisticated, both philosophically and theologically, and and far more influential in the academy. But nowhere, I mean, people as much as you admire Plantinga, he's not spoken of like C.S. Lewis. Nor did he write, by the way, uh, science fiction novels for children. No, no, he did not. <laughs> but I, I, I want to sort of drive home one lesson about what this shows yeah. about Anscombe, because I think it's a lesson for Christians in their intellectual pursuits. Anscombe was asked by her daughter once, her daughter records the story, uh, asking about this debate and, you know, why did you go after him right. uh, that way, mama? And she said, well, look, we have this duty to the truth. And I take it behind that remark is that Jesus Christ is the truth, yes. <laughs> that we've got this duty to the truth that we don't let bad arguments stand even in a good cause. And yeah. she was about following the truth fearlessly wherever that led her. And, and by the way, I was as confused as her daughter at one point as a college student, as I'm trying to come to church. So I was, as a young evangelical Christian, reading about that exchange in a biography of Lewis, I assume then that Anscombe is not a believer. No. You know, I, I, I assume that Anscombe was writing, because I will, I will fault the biographer somewhat, because it's as if, you know, uh, Anscombe is writing simply as an analytic philosopher and basically, you know, an, an, another, you know, A.J. Iyer or Anthony Flew. And, and that's yeah. hardly the case, you know. No. Yeah. But it bugs her that he's glib and sloppy as she sees it. And right. she wants to say these arguments don't work. And like Augustine says something like this. He says, uh, don't give bad arguments for uh, the truths of the faith because people right. will think that those are the arguments you've got. Right. Yeah, uh, something about Elizabeth Anscombe that I just want to mention is that uh, her, her role right now in terms of British public life is largely uh, due to her defense of human dignity and uh, some, some very prescient work that she did. Uh, basically on the sanctity of life against the threats of such things as euthanasia and uh, the idea that uh, human life has reached its uh, meaningful end before its physical end. Yeah, that's right. Her whole, the whole second half of her career, arguably her whole career long, uh, my friend at the University of Toronto, a theologian philosopher there, John Berkman, is working a lot on this. Um, she's concerned with the loss of the concept of murder in the late modern world. And she thinks about it in context of abortion, thinks about it in context of euthanasia, thinks about it in context especially of late modern warfare, that we must preserve the concept of murder and a strict prohibition on the killing of the innocent. Well, absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why, as many have noted, it takes a Christian world to produce a decent murder mystery. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I hadn't thought to link those two things up, but uh, I see it. Yeah, and well, it's been it's been done, uh, you know, uh, precisely because of, for instance, the Murder Club, which included some of the very people we've mentioned here. Yes. you know, uh, mm -hmm. who gave themselves to the literary uh, device, uh, Chesterton involved in this, and and, and so many yep. others. Eventually, P. D. James, very much yep. the successor Sayers. to this, mm -hmm. and and in some ways is a more popular Iris Murdoch, uh, in that P. D. James also works in fairly sophisticated, uh, and by the way. More than one of these women uh, uh, used initials so that no one knew exactly what gender they were when they were making their uh, academic, early academic work. Yeah, it, James it, it's also. a convention in, uh, in the British Academy, but not always yeah. for novelists. So, uh, yes. Yeah. 
so, uh, you know, to me, at least, I would argue that Anscombe and uh, Murdoch have the most lasting, um, at least recognized significance. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happens to the four of them in what we might say the uh, the afterlife of their philosophical contribution? Hmm. Yeah. Midgley becomes actually the most prominent public intellectual of the four of them. Uh, She doesn't start writing until she's raised her boys and then she goes back to teaching and then starts writing and brings out the first of her 16 books. Amazingly right. uh, Starting in her 1950s, starting in her 1950s, starting in her 50s, uh, in the late 70s. And so they're famous in different circles. Murdoch the novelist, Anscombe and Foote together, I think, within the Academy about equally well-known, though Anscombe is thought of as the greater. Um, And Midgley is the public intellectual. But where do they leave us? Um, Anscombe, Foote, and Murdoch between them create space within the academy to think differently than Ayer thought. Uh, They are the ones who open up other vistas, who uh, level critiques at the dominant forms of air and post-air moral thought. But none of them really put together um, an ethics in a way that Midgley does. And so I'm especially admiring of this, how this late bloomer or late starter in the set is the one who thinks about what would this look like if it was more fully spelled out. Anscombe and Foote say things like, well, we should really return to the virtues. We should think more about the virtues. But it's not like they go Thomas Aquinas and give you the Secunda Secunde where you have a catalog of all the virtues. And that's not Midgley's approach either. But Midgley goes the furthest to say, let us think about a number of practical questions in life in light of this way of doing ethics. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I need to ask you this question. So relate these four figures uh, to the question of the existence of God and uh, to the Christian um, intellectual tradition. Yeah, that's a great question. I've been thinking about this because you having me on, Uh Bishop Barron writing an appreciative note about the book. I've been, the book is not apologetic. Um, And yet I've been intrigued and pleased (laughs) to see Christians thinking there's some affinity between what these women, three of whom are not believers, are doing and how we see the world. It's a book, I would say, about how much of a difference it makes the background pictures that you bring to everything else that you think and everything that you think about. And I think it is as natural as breathing for a Christian to be a moral realist, to think that goodness is objective. And so whether or not we're particularly drawn, as I'm drawn myself, to this Aristotle, Aquinas, virtue and vice way of thinking about ethics, nonetheless, the idea behind the idea that we need to get out of a picture in which this couldn't be true, in which the world is this pitiless, blank, valueless place, and putting ourselves in a fundamentally different kind of worldview in which we could imagine uh, a moral reality. I think Christians see, oh yes, 
that moral imagination is something that we recognize and something that we are concerned to defend. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. And um, I do consider myself uh, as a theologian also to have a responsibility as an apologist. But I think that has to come after engaging honestly, as, at least as honestly as possible, the, uh, the thought and uh, the structures of thought of, of the person with whom we're engaging. I think your book is, uh, is phenomenally interesting and, and frankly kind of sets, uh, set, sets an interpretive grid for what had been a missing piece in the English-speaking uh, intellectual tradition. Um, but so I, but I, well, no, I, 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 I think that that's something exciting to me. It's, it's, fine, it's fine. Okay, I, I knew these people existed. I've read, especially Anscombe, um, and some foot, and and, and I, 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 it's just very, very helpful. And in, and even the biographical sections are just very helpful. But I make a distinction in this thinking between two different categories that I, I find lacking sometimes uh, in, in in other apologetic thought, and that is number one the category of a Christian mind, and then secondly, a mind that still operates within many of the structures of Christian thought. And, uh, and, and, and that's a distinction. And, and of course, you, you have those who actually are trying to be outside both of those categories, and uh, some quite successfully so. But, uh, you know, and, and frankly, in this period in the English-speaking world, it was very difficult, actually, to operate outside the yes. intellectual structures of the inherited Christian faith. Yeah. And uh, I'm thinking, we mentioned Plantinga earlier yeah. on. Uh, I'm thinking of how hard it was for him and Nicholas Walterstorff and other Christian yeah, philosophers yeah. coming into the academy at the beginning of their careers. They testified to this when they write memoiristically yeah. uh, that they had to break down these clusters of assumptions that made the questions they wanted to ask, the things they wanted to say, unstatable. And right. uh, that's a service, that's an important work to do that's pre-apologetic. Now, I have never done before in one of these conversations what I'm about to do now, because it's it's never been an occasion. Uh, so your book came out uh, basically in the last year. Uh, yeah, it's, about a year it's ago. A copyright 2022. Again, the women are up to something, how Elizabeth Anscombe, Philippa Foote, uh, Mary Midgley, and Iris Murdoch revolutionized ethics. Okay, so then more recently, yes, Metaphysical Animals, How Four Women Brought Philosophy Back to Life by Claire yep. Mack Cumhall and, and Rachel Wiseman. Okay, what's the difference between these two books? What, what, the, the, this one came out after yours, I believe. Yeah, just. So, <laughs> yeah, but how in, did you did did you and the other authors know you were working on the same project? Eventually we did. Uh, I got to know Rachel in 2015, 2016, uh, when I was on one of my stints over in London teaching Houghton University's honors program. And we met for coffee. At the time, she and several collaborators, collaborators, including Claire, were working especially on bringing out anthologies of these women's writing, but, you know, toying with the idea of doing biographical writing. Um, it wasn't clear at the time that they were already thinking that, but, you know, they had me up to a conference in Durham and friends would be too strong. We don't uh, see a lot of one another, but uh, very friendly acquaintances. And uh, then uh, they decided, yeah, we want to write a book on this. Uh, so I think each of us was hoping like that it wouldn't be destructive to the other one's yeah. work that each of us was doing this, but each of us knew that we'd independently 
form the desire to right. tell this story, but they are different stories. I don't know if you've yeah. read Rachel and Claire's book yet. Yeah, well, I, but, want, I, I want you to tell me how you see them as different. Okay. Theirs has a different uh, set of chronological boundaries. And um, with that different scope, um, a, a different level of detail that I do a childhood to death scope and am asking what's the implicit philosophical project that emerges out of the work of these women. And Claire and Rachel are especially interested in formative years. They take us just up to 1957, just when Anscombe and Foote are about to start doing a lot more detail during that they're period. famous for. And yeah. it's and it's hugely yeah. richly detailed. It's so yeah. intricate that if you want to take a deep dive into what was their experience like in the 40s and 50s, um, that Claire and Rachel are writing about 37 to 57 and writing with a kind of yeah. uh, detail that I did not aspire to. Yeah, no, I get that. And uh, I, I, I did read their book. And I will say again, by the way, I give them credit for a good title as well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, my thought in, in uh, the two of these books coming out when they did, and again, I'm always kind of really intellectually curious and, and, uh, and, and hungry when I find uh, a question being asked about a period, about even an individual or a period in an individual's thought where, you know, all of a sudden some formative change has taken place that, that shapes the Western mind. But it reminded me, uh, I've had one of these conversations with Peter Brown at Princeton, who was still writing in his 10th decade of life. And, you know, he really developed the intellectual field of, of late medieval history, you know, as, as a period of late medieval history. And he reshaped the entire intellectual, you know, the way intellectual history is taught. Uh, now, now you've got, you know, editors who specialize in editing books on the, the late medieval era. And I have to wonder if, uh, if something similar will be happening here. I'm just going to predict that uh, I think these two books together and yours first are likely to set off some, uh, some further discussion, which could also be fruitful. I hope so. Yeah, it's been, you know, you're worried when friends are in a kind of professional uh, competition right. with you or like there's something competitive about your projects. It's been a relief to them and to me that the books really are distinctive enough to do different kinds yeah. of work together. And I think it has on the whole been fruitful for both books to get reviewed together, each of them giving reason to editors to do a review of the other. Yeah. Well, I uh, I was particularly intrigued by your book and uh, the way you set out the, the 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 narrative. And by the way, it's very helpful to me to have uh, kind of birth to death uh, covered here uh, and and their intellectual impact. Uh, I want to ask you one other question, uh, mm -hmm. Professor Lipscomb. So so what are you up to now? What are you up to? What am I up to? Yeah. What are um, you up to? Well, always uh, teaching uh -huh. my classes, uh, getting a group of students ready to go off to London with our honors program, uh, as they do each spring. But in my scholarship, there's two things that intrigue me, especially right now. I don't know which one of them I'll pursue more or first. First, Richard Hare, uh, this POW, who uh, is the kind of bete noire of these women throughout the early phases of their career. But I find him a very sympathetic figure in some ways, very interesting figure. And there's a pivot in his thought from the first things that he writes while he's a prisoner of war to the writings for which he becomes known, the writings that set him against these women um, and them against him. 
but I'm interested in what happened there. What were his thoughts at first and why did he change? He is someone, it seems to me, who falls under the influence of a prevailing intellectual culture, a prevailing intellectual fashion, and turns away from what interests me about these women's work. And I think that's an interesting story in its own right. Um, but then also, I got interested in writing this book about how much philosophy was part of the public conversation in Britain after World War II. The BBC has this highbrow channel, the third program, that is broadcasting philosophy talks and philosophy discussions all the time so that it's much more... Hourly workers knew who Bertrand Russell was. Yes. And what was happening there? I'd right. like to... My working title is Philosophy on the Air, and there are rich yeah. resources for this. The BBC Written Archives have transcripts of all of this stuff. I think it could be a fun ensemble cast book, uh, thinking about the rise and fall of um, public philosophy in Britain uh, after the wars. Professor Liscombe, I can understand why uh, students love being in your classes and uh, going with you to study in London. So uh, I, I, a curious mind and a disciplined mind draws other minds. And uh, I really enjoyed your book. And if you write the one especially on Philosophy on the Air, sign me up for a conversation as, uh, as soon as it comes out. Thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public. Thanks so much for having me on. It was a pleasure. Many thanks to my guest, Benjamin Lipscomb, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you will find more than 150 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, just go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. And until next time, keep thinking. Keep thinking.